Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Future Hacker. I'm your host, Maria Taigi, and today we're welcoming back Roger Spitz, president of TechStential and chairman of the Disruptive Futures Institute. He's a foresight strategist and a venture capitalist, and his expertise lies at the intersection of future studies, system thinking, and sustainable value creation. We had a great conversation with Roger back in 2020. We're adding the link down here so you can listen to his journey into the futurist world. He's back here for a very good reason. So, Roger, you just released a book, a very, very expected book in the market, by the way, serious. He wrote in collaboration with Lydia Zwing, which was also interviewed by us back then, and published by the Disruptive Future, Future Institute called The Definitive Guide to Thriving on Disruptions, a series of four volumes that will give the readers the foundations, frameworks, and tools to apply not only professionally, but also in your personal life. The third volume will be released in the coming days, actually. So welcome, Roger. It's such a pleasure to have you with, with us on the show again. Uh, fantastic, Maria. So so cool to, to see the journey of Future Hacker since our first interview. It's just amazing what you, you guys are doing, um, you and Andre and the team. So congratulations. It's really uh, very rich resources for, for these topics. You know, Roger is way more than a guest here. He's been always such a, a partner of us, and we really appreciate all your help and all your inputs and insights during the, all those years, Roger. Thank you so, so much. Uh, but, you know, let's do that. Um, you say that uncertainty and unpredictability are actually a blessing to exercise our freedom, agency, and choice. I thought it was such an interesting perspective and a great way to begin our conversations because usually when we talk about uncertainty, uh, people take it in a very, even stressful way, right? In a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a more heavy way, tough way. And the way you see it is pretty different. So what's the concept behind that? Sure. It's, uh, you're right. I think um, for much of the world, um, and myself included for much of my life, to be perfectly honest, um, the idea of change, of uncertainty, of not knowing is actually something that we're not cabled as humans to enjoy. We like, you know, we're animals of creatures of habit. We like to sort of have some visibility to believe we're in control and that. Um, and I spent a lot of time both professionally, but also just, you know, as a human, as a person thinking about, about change. That's our focus these days. We're focused exclusively on understanding nonlinear, unpredictable uncertainty. Um, and the, the frame is really the following. It's almost philosophical. It's almost existentialist. If you think about things being predictable, in a way, there's a degree of predetermination. You know what's going to happen, but it's predetermined. So you actually have no agency or choice because if you're doing a certain thing, you have a certain outcome which is predefined, almost irrespective of what you might want or think. The idea of um, you know, uncertainty being a sort of a canvas, a blank canvas, is really simply that in existentialist philosophy, in a sense, you exist, you come into the world, and then you define your essence, you create yourself. And the fact that this contingency, which is a way of sort of saying something may or may not happen, that contingency means that you actually have freedom, agency, and choice. And so 
if you think about innovation, if you think about new things that arise, if you think about ideas, um, all that comes from discontinuity. It comes from something that you thought might happen, but but that didn't. And it's extremely important because otherwise you're in a sense prisoner of things. And if ever there's a discrepancy between what your mind is assuming should be predicted and not, you get concerned or disappointed. And the reality is that our world is nonlinear, unpredictable and complex. And so the whole concept of being in control of the world or having a world that's controllable is, is, is not the case. So, and we've seen it with recent events, whether they're in Brazil, whether it's in the Americas, whether it's globally, whether it's geopolitical, economic, uh, healthcare, with, with the pandemic. So that idea that the world is, is nonlinear and unpredictable is important because that gives you the right frame of mind of the reality of the world. And the idea that you have agency, freedom and choice to define what you want is actually, I think, empowering and the correct way of seeing it. Yes, I, I think that when, when, when framing it that way, it should, it should give us this sense of freedom that you're talking about, right? And you usually reinforce a lot the importance of agency. You, and, and you use a lot of a lot of this term, right? Agency, having agency. So, can you speak about the importance of agency and how it relates the, to the ability to thrive in uncertain and unpredictable situations? And how could we empower people in this direction? Because when I think about that, I wonder that is it even possible to have agency without having proper education? and guidance and without having access to quality information? What's your thought about that? Yeah, so you put your nail on, you, you hit the nail on the head, right, with uh, the importance of education. Because there are two things that happen with us not liking unpredictability or uncertainty. One is human nature. We have cognitive biases and we're cabled in a certain way. So we're cabled in a more linear way than non-linear. So that's fine. That's human nature. We have to kind of fight it or reframe it. And how does that frame of mind come? It comes from education. And I use education in the broader sense. It's education when you're born with your parents or family. It's education at school. It's informal education in the playground. It's um, the education of life. It's education when you're taught, you know, when you learn from your colleagues, you see what other businesses do or, or what have you. And if all of those um, institutions, organizations, um, ecosystems are cabled in a way that's assuming that the world is stable, predictable, linear. That's the way you're going to be prepared for life. And if it isn't, which it isn't, the world is not like that. It's just an oversimplification. The fact that for many decades we can make the assumption that everything is predictable and behave like that, that assumption is an expensive assumption. And in times like we've seen over the past few years, the cost of making that assumption is very severe. And so it then boils down to education, which is having a way of thinking differently. Um, now, when it comes to education, I use it again in the very broader sense. And you're right. It's harder if you don't necessarily have access to information or, or people to, to learn from. I would say nonetheless that two things. One is that even with all the money in the world, all the good education in the world, I mean, the US, Brazil, I suppose, have very good education. The reality is that 
the education is terrible, that none of these institutions or the incentives of the governance bodies or leadership teams, none of these institutions are preparing you for the reality of the world. Now, of course, it might be an additional challenge if you're born in, you know, the remote part of India or, or Africa or wherever it might be, or even the US. But there is an element, I think, of democratization, of innovation, of education, of information. Um, for $30, $40, you can probably get a kind of phone that allows you access to internet for most parts of the world, except, you know, difficult places where intentionally you don't have access to internet. But um, for much of the world, even when there's poverty, there's often some forms of democracy. So it's not because, you know, some countries are autocracies and there's nothing you can do. You know, North Korea, you're not going to have access to information. But, you know, for much of India or Africa, it's not a problem of autocracy necessarily or dictatorships or, or regime. It's often just, you know, poverty and access to things. But, you know, for $30, $40, I mean, there's been amazing initiatives in India. You know, a young girl in the south of India anyway can probably have access to as much information as a Harvard professor these days. Then you need to know what to do with the information, etc., and have the intuition. So the access to information and to many tools of creativity of things are actually more democratized than it's ever been. You know, what someone can do anywhere in the world today, the difference between having resources and not having resources is smaller. And you can see it in the corporate world. That's why there's so many startups everywhere in the world competing suddenly with a Google or whatever, because there's a democratization of tools, of information and, and know-how. I would give one beautiful example. I'm born in South Africa, which is not the same as the whole of Africa, but um, there's, a, there's a young boy who was 14 called uh, William Kamkwamba um, in Malawi, who... At the age of 14, I mean, there was starvation where he was in, in his Malawan village and there was no electricity, no water, there was nothing. And he basically had this idea and went to a school library, found an old book of creating an electric windmill, basically from junk. And not only did he not get the support or education much, all of his family and professors and everybody were basically dismissing him for wasting time and for being crazy. And so he went really against the grain and found a way. And, and there's actually, I think, a Netflix movie on it, and he's done a lot of talks. He wrote a book. I think it's called The, the Boy Who Harnessed the Wind. And of course, this is an exception. But, you know, not only was it, everything was against him. It was war. It was famine. His family and ecosystem and units were kind of not supportive because they thought he was just kind of, doing crazy talk and actually you know he saved the village from famine because with electric windmill they were then able to produce electricity and, and basically survive and, and develop and that so anyway long story short um of course it helps where you're born and how privileged you are but i'd say much of the privileged world has terrible education too and terrible knowledge of how to use information or what to believe or not um, and to use the agency and then a lot of the world that maybe doesn't have the, the same um, resources or, or luck, it doesn't mean that, the, you know, that it's necessarily um, the end for them. And that, again, comes back to our point around agency, freedom and choice. A lot of the time, it depends on really how you think about life.
And also, I can't avoid thinking that some people just are born with a special thing within them as well, right, <laughs> Roger? But yeah, I do love your yeah. story. I do love your, do love your story, and and that's truth. And I think that uh, people are sometimes we have too many excuses not to do certain things, and 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 sometimes the, the answers are easier than you know we we think that they could be, uh, which drives me to to my 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 other question to you. Which is, how does Eastern philosophy, specifically Zen Buddhism, play a role in understanding and leveraging disruption? This is something that you cover in the book as well, right? Yeah, we do. I'm just going to add another point. I know it's a bit long in my, in my answer. I always am. I'm sorry mm. about that. Um, sure, no, please. <laughs> but the other thing is, you know, if the world that does have resources and that is privileged um, mm. were better at their own incentives and governance and objectivity and better educated, they would also be more thoughtful around collective well-being and, and society, whether it's in certain regions of the world or even in countries that are, you know, the US or Brazil. These are countries that have resources. I and mean, Brazil has its issues, of course, but it's, you know, it's the seventh or eighth largest economy in the world, right? So for me, there's an element where by education is so important that if, if it was cabled correctly, we would also be supporting those who are more in need. My concern is, of course, for those who are disadvantaged, it's, it's, it's tragic and it's, it's not their fault. But the issue is so big that even those who are privileged and who do have all the resources and everything in the world, with bad governance and bad incentives and all that, ultimately none of these countries or regions or people are doing a good job. And therefore that much more so it's going to be harder to then support those who are more in need to, to the, sorry. So I just, just wanted no, to no, please that. go ahead. Yes. <laughs> so that was, you know, that's really in, in everybody's collective benefit just to sort of be, yeah. be less, um, you know, and not I completely have the wrong agree incentives. with you. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's, it's, it's such an important point. Yeah. So on the Eastern philosophy, it comes back, in a, in a different way to existential philosophy. Because if you think about the concept, for instance, of, of Shoshin, Shoshin in Zen Buddhism, it's, it's beginner's mind. So the idea about beginner's mind is really to look at things with a blank page, to really think of things without preconceived ideas, without assumptions. And in a way, that, that's not dissimilar from the existentialist concept of of you exist and then you create your essence. In other words, you exist with freedom, agency, and choice. You determine what happens. And Shoshin is, is a way of thinking about basically the beginner's mind. And if you don't know that something is impossible, so take um, the example we just talked about. The, the young boy didn't know that it was impossible he, to create a windmill. He maybe saw a picture in a book, you know, it's only his parents and school and everybody who sort of assumed you can't so sort of say, no, that's impossible. You're talking crazy. But if you have Shoshin and beginner's mind, you don't know that it's impossible. And therefore, it's, for you, it's possible. And, you know, there's an interesting story. There, there are hundreds of stories like that. But the Wrights brothers, when they discovered, you know, when they were the first to prototype the flying, you know, plane, um, they, had, they were competing against scientists. They were not scientists themselves. They were competing against people who had a lot of money. Um, I think it was Samuel Langley um, in the early 1900s, who had a lot of support for flying. And the Wrights brothers were the first to come up with something that worked because 
they would take a different perspective. They almost weren't polluted. And this is the idea of first principles, which dates back thousands of years to the, to the Greeks and that. And a lot of what I know people don't like in these days, but a lot of what um, Elon Musk has done with Tesla and all that, it's really that first principle, SpaceX, to be able to compete and make commercial space so much cheaper than Boeing and Airbus that have been sending rockets and producing rockets for half a century. It's because of first principles. So one of the big concepts of Zen Buddhism is that beginner's mind. But there are many. If you think about Kintsugi, you know the vases, if you break a vase and you paint it with gold leaves and you then have the, the broken kind of porcelain that's put together. That's called Kintsugi. And that basically, the concept behind that in Zen Buddhism, it's that you're accepting the flaws and maybe you're making something even prettier, despite it being broken, despite what might be perceived as flaws. You then have a, an important concept, which is Mujo, which is to do with um, serendipity and also, you know, Wabi-sabi, which is to do with transience, impermanence. So once you put all these things together, if you accept that everything is impermanent, transient, it means that it's changing all the time. If you accept Shoshin with beginner's mind, if you accept the imperfections of life and celebrate them with Kintsugi, if you think about um, a lot of these concepts, basically they're very helpful to think about change or disruption and they're empowering. Again, it's often the West that oversimplifies the controllability of things, the permanence of things, the certainty of things, the perfection of things. And if something is imperfect or if you make a mistake, it's a negative thing instead of thinking about the learning. If you think about a different philosophy that celebrates imperfection, that celebrates impermanence, that celebrates change, that accepts that change is a constant, you're going to be less frazzled and less concerned about disruption or, or, or change. It's amazing how it applies uh, first um, to our very own personal life, as well as it does when we're talking about businesses. And, and, and what I think it's interesting is that um, my next question to you was going to be about the six eyes framework. And somehow you sort of cover them because when we just started talking, you talked about the impossible with this little kid in Africa. You talked about the invention and improvisation as well, imagination as well, inspiration as well. So, and it all makes sense. Uh, and I, I miss the intuition one. So can we cover that? And it's very clear how it can help ourselves individually. I think that uh, it's even harder when it comes to the, to the organizational sphere, because then we're talking about the collective. Right. Uh, so, so let's go through that way. So let's talk a little about the six eyes and how we could actually make it apply to, to the corporate world. Yeah. So, so indeed, the corporate world has different specificities. Um, so just to reframe the, the six eyes, the, you know, when we were doing this work with, you know, we spoke to hundreds of people, I spent 20 years thinking about these topics and my own experience and Lydia has a wealth of experience. And when I put it together, we saw certain ingredients and I kind of created the six eyes as an acronym, but ultimately I noticed that you either have those who kind of consider that you can adapt and be resilient to change. And I actually wanted to go a bit further, which is to say, you know, maybe actually you can thrive and, you know, we're not just being commercial or marketing with our book, thriving on disruption. 
thriving on disruption is because we think that we can actually enjoy the fact that things aren't predictable. And so the six eyes is really just thinking, if you apply intuition, you avoid the preconceptions, you trust yourself, you trust your judgment. If you have inspiration, you explore, you're curious, imagination, you accept to break from the present, you ask broad questions, you improvise, you experiment, you might make mistakes, but the mistakes are maybe gifts. You accept the ambiguity of the improvisation. If you think about invention, nothing is predetermined. We're even inventing ourselves and our future and the impossible. If you have the confidence to wonder, to fail, to explore, you might achieve the impossible. If you don't know that it's impossible, you might achieve the impossible. So that's why we wanted to bring it to one step up. Now, I think when you apply it to the corporate world, ultimately, it boils down to individuals, right? Um, it boils down to individuals, to culture, and to some of the things we've talked about around education in the broader sense. So I actually don't think there's any difference in terms of the corporate world. But of course, you need to have the right training and learning. You need to have the right culture. You need to have the right mindset. You need to have the right incentives. You need to have the right governance. So it doesn't happen on its own, but ultimately it will be driven by individuals if we ensure that some of the other ingredients to systemic change and to transformation are kind of addressed. So now, now that we are talking about the corporate world then, and what, so what do you think are the most common errors, the most common mistakes that companies do when, uh, you know, trying to face uncertainties, especially when it's time, I don't know, during hard times? Yeah, so listen, acknowledging that, that what we're talking about is, is hard, right? The, the governance systems, the incentives are not driving what we're talking about, unfortunately. The educational systems either, etc. So there's a lot of headwinds. But there are probably two aspects. I mean, there are a lot of mistakes one makes, etc. But I think there are two aspects which really... Um, create even more challenges for organizations um, when, think, when times are more, more challenging, maybe. I think the first one is, is relying on assumptions. Um, and the second one is considering disruption as something discrete and isolated and specific, often like the Silicon Valley way of thinking about disruption, you know, product innovation, or as opposed to understanding that disruption is, is systemic, it's a constant um, it's self-reinforcing. Um, regarding the assumptions, it's fine to make assumptions. Everybody makes assumptions. It's not possible not to make assumptions. I think the challenge with the, the businesses and, and the biggest mistakes they make is to rely on those assumptions as something that is a singular fixed outcome. And that is often to the exclusion of anything else. And therefore, You're not, on one hand, preparing for, for serious things that could happen. But on the other hand, you're not taking advantage of, of certain opportunities because you kind of have a very um, focused determination on this is what I believe. These are the assumptions I'm relying on. So you don't go off-piste, to use a sort of skiing analogy. I'm not a skier, but for those who ski, you don't go off-piste in terms of the imagination or thinking crazy which can be, you know, very beneficial. We can see it with climate, the importance of thinking, you know, very differently. And at the same time, you're relying on a specific outcome to the exclusion of everything else. Um, and then if, if should, you know, excuse my French, but uh, if should happens, you're not prepared because you think, oh, that's just 1% of happening or 0.1%. You don't think in terms of Nassim Taleb, the asymmetry. 
and anti-fragile. You don't realize that even though it's a very small probability of happening, maybe the outcome and the impact of that is huge. So take the pandemic, you know, you save a billion dollars, a few billion dollars, but then you waste trillions of dollars by not being prepared. Or if you're assuming that, um, you know, you should do share buybacks because it helps your share price for five minutes. And then if there's a pandemic or crisis, you then have no cash on the balance sheet because you just spent $200 million buying shares to boost your share price for five minutes. So those kind of things, the cost of relying on assumptions is going up because the more uncertainty, the more unpredictable, and the more unpredictable, the more likely things are going to deviate from what you expect. And therefore, the cost of relying on those assumptions are increasing. And then to do with the disruption, I think we've seen it every day. You know, when organizations are assuming that disruption is specific, you're constantly waiting to go back to normal after whatever event, you know, you're not realizing that actually you should be capable to be resilient, to be adaptive, to be um, opportunistic, to thrive on, on change and to have the anti-fragility, the foresight, the anticipatory thinking, to be resilient and to actually even do well when there's shocks. And so it's that kind of relying on, on assumptions on one hand and then assuming that disruptions are specific. Let me just disrupt my automotive market, not realizing that it's a software company or a semiconductor manufacturer that's going to be basically 80% of the value of the automotive car. Or with Notco, you know, great Chilean company that does alternative protein, um, you know, you take the JBSs of the world who are the biggest, you know, um, poultry and meat processors in the world. They're not the ones who are creating billion dollar businesses um, for alternative protein. They're not thinking outside of that because they're thinking disruption is something specific. Let me just improve innovation or let me do whatever. They're not thinking holistically or companies that don't realize the multitude of self-reinforcing um, existential and other risks, which are combining together so it's not just inflation or pandemic or geopolitical or the labor force changes or the way millennials are thinking or technology and how it's exponential these are not separate isolated things they're constant they're self-reinforcing they evolve in different ways often exponentially and so unless you realize how systemic this is and that all this is a constant change that you have to understand that uncertainty is a constant you're going to have trouble if you're thinking about the framework of, of continuous change and post-normal going back to what it used to be. It's just like a whole new modus operandi, really, right? Uh, it's just a, 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 a different way that you need to, to restructure uh, from, 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 from the company's culture and people. It's not only companies, but it's, it's made of people. Uh, but stop being uh, so not only... Uh, afraid of errors and unknowns, but also having the the right incentives in place. Because I, I, I think that there's no use of, of, of putting this all out there. But at the end of the day, you are compensating people for the end of the quarter right now. Right? So I, I think that it, it has to, to happen that whole really review of processes and incentives and, 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 and culture for something like that to, to actually work, right? 
Yeah. No, listen, completely. And that's that's why my biggest focus and interest is turned, you know, the umbrella of futures and foresight and thinking about systemic change and transformational change. It's precisely for that, because this context and this reality of our world, you need to think about the different levers for change from structures to governance to incentives to education. You need to think at all the levels of what is effective change in a complex nonlinear world. And therefore, all of the things you've talked about, policy, all of these things are not isolated things. They're different levers of change with different levels of impact in a complex world. Um, and therefore, you have to think not linearly. You have to think about longer term. You have to think more systemically, et cetera, et cetera. So completely agree with you. Um, each of these individual things are issues and taken all together, they're just creating the wrong kind of outcomes. And and, and now we have the, the whole technology game in place, right? As much as disruption is not just about technology, but now we have, and, and especially now with all these trending topics of chat, chat GPT and, and artificial intelligence and automation and decentralization, virtualization. So with all of that going on, we are now uh, putting in question the whole notion of being human. And, and that's something you talk about as well, how being human can be redefined and how can we remain relevant in this context? So, and, and, and what's your thought about that? Yeah, so there are different levels of being human, right? Um, there's the mind, there's the body, there's how much, you know, um, we age. Um, the, I think the, how to say There's a first level, which is, I think, one of the most important things, which is decision-making. And one of the biggest, you know, considerations with one aspect of technology is, well, freedom, agency, and choice. How much are we able to exercise that? And the thing about AI, which is slightly different from just other general technology, is that it impacts very directly um, decision-making. It doesn't mean that it necessarily understands the brain, understands the decisions, is capable of processing like a brain does, but the outcomes affect human decisions. And I don't just mean in terms of, you know, if you go to the bank and you apply for, to buy a car and they decline your credit, that's a, maybe some kind of algorithm that decided that and it impacts you. I'm talking about even your ability to make decisions. The more complex the world is, the less we are understanding that complexity and changing our education, governance, incentive structures, the more we're going to be delegating that complexity of the world to machines. Whether the machines are doing a good job or not, whether they understand what they're doing, little by little, we are delegating that authority. And we no longer have exclusivity to decision-making in the 21st century. We actually call it tech essentialism. It's like existentialism in the 21st century, where instead of looking just at the human condition in the world, we look at the human condition in a technological world. And humans no longer have that exclusivity to decision-making. And so the biggest thing in terms of how it affects humanity, to my mind, is decision-making. And then you have things around longevity and, and a million automation and the workforce and many things. I think to kind of you know, just take a step back. 
it all comes down to the things we're talking about earlier and mainly starting with education. Um, and, you know, we've developed what we call the AAA framework, which is applicable whether you're working or person or young or old or whatever, to sort of try and deal with the technological aspect of the world and to stay human. Because ultimately, technology is going to affect and is already affecting decision-making, our body, and, and some aspects are positive as well, you know, in terms of health and drug discovery through AI, the speed with which you can find drugs. Today, AI is helping a lot, the speed with which, the, you know, the COVID vaccine. So technology is, like disruption for us, is kind of neutral to a degree. We're not necessarily saying it's good or bad. A lot of it depends on how we're prepared for it, what we do with it, what safeguards we think about. But to cut to the, to the what does it mean, so it's affecting us in every possible way as to, to our humanity itself. And I think ultimately what we need is to accept that assumption of the world as being complex, nonlinear and unpredictable. You want to have anti-fragile foundations. So our AAA is basically anti-fragile foundations, which means that when you get shocks, you're resilient to that. You can maybe even benefit from those shocks using the Nassim Taleb terminology. You want to be anticipatory. So you want to think about going forward longer time horizons. It doesn't mean you're right. You might think of different possibilities, but you're not relying on just one singular outcome. You're thinking broad in terms of possible scenarios and you're preparing for, for some of these. It's not prediction. You're just anticipating what could happen and some of which you have in your control. What policies should you have in place? What preparation for pandemics, etc. And then the third A is really just to think about um, agility. What is my agility day to day to reconcile long term and short term? It's, you know, only the present exists, but at some point you need to have visions and think about the longer term. So to emerge in a complex world every day, you're thinking about, okay, what do I do as trial and error? How do I emerge? How do I think about life where I may not have a playbook where I may not have preconceived answers because it's a blank page. And so for me, that is really what school should be teaching, what, how humans should be cabled to have some foundations that are less fragile, to think longer term and more systemically, and to think about the agility of emergence when things are not predetermined, you, but, but taking that in a positive way, you're creating yourself. It's the earlier discussion around agency, basically. Um, as much as I do like uh, this, this point of view that is more optimistic, let's say, um, I still have many concerns when it comes to, to analyzing the effect of, of uh, all the changes that are happening now. And, and due to the lack of not only education, but awareness and maybe things that are not being as discussed as they should. Uh, but... I feel that nowadays it's because it's becoming increasingly hard for people uh, to understand what's real and what's not, right? And when we now when we talk about uh, using AI to generate um, content and information and, and images, um, I think that we already fail to see what's uh, fake when it's actually easy to do so. And imagine now when it's getting increasingly hard because you literally can see, like you, you, 
with videos and things like that. So, and do, do you think that we are moving fast enough in this direction? Because I, I, I my, my, my feeling is that we need to have policies in place. We need to have ethics discussions in place and more awareness and more knowledge about all of that. And even protection mechanisms. So for tools or whatever, for people to understand that this is real, this is not. Uh, and, and maybe there's a little pessimistic of mine, but I'd love to get your point of view as well on that. Sure. So listen, um, just to kind of um, take, take a step back, um, I completely agree with you. I'm not positive around the way the world is going or prepared for any of this. I'm extremely negative and concerned. The reason, one of the reasons we set up the Disruptive Futures Institute and we're writing these books and, and that is to try and help um, the world understand the nature of the world and how to address it and think about systemic change. So I'm equally concerned, uh, Maria, you're totally right. I'm not positive at all about the way our educational systems are, the incentives, the governance, the, the way the world is, is, is prepared for any of this. What I'm positive about is the fact that things are um, uncertain and that things are not predicted and predetermined that fundamentally that is a positive feature that gives you agency freedom and choice but i so so there's a distinction in my mind between the concept of um uh freedom and agency and the fact that uncertainty means that things are not predetermined and that is a positive feature of the world now the fact that the governance systems are wrong the incentives are wrong the leadership teams are wrong the educational systems are wrong and that all most every company is relying on false assumptions and that everything is being oversimplified with a very sort of short-termist wrong incentives and wrong governance is a tragedy which could cost us the planet the earth and humanity so i'm extremely concerned about how severe and tangible all these existential risks are and how useless humanity is in addressing them But what we try and do is sort of say, okay, we can either say, okay, it's the end of the world, let's just be, you know, or we can sort of think about, okay, so what would it be required to upgrade humanity? What would be required for systemic change and to try and do something? It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's there yet. It doesn't mean I'm confident it will happen, but it's that distinction. Now, having said all that, then, of course, you need a number of initiatives in place. So take, for instance, the point you made around um, information and knowing what's fake, what's real. If you take some of the Scandinavian countries, they have some of the best education in the world. And they're very good at some of the things we talked about, testing and challenging assumptions and evaluating, you know, the filters for how you think about information and life, you know. So Finland, for instance is treating data and information and technology as a language. Finland has started a few months ago pro-focusing on media literacy. They teach it at school. They teach it as if they taught you English or Portuguese or Latin as a language. That's and in that, Me Media literacy. Media really literacy great. at yes. school. And of course... That's one amazing. Of, it's, it's amazing. Yes and no. It is amazing because it's rare. What's... what's yes. Not amazing is that it should be an absolute evidence and necessity that yes. education is the biggest lever for change, the biggest way it shapes our minds and the minds of youngsters as to the views on the world. 
and they should understand what is it to what filters should you use for information to understand what is being reported or claimed why what's the rationale what are the real motivations are they conflict of interests from whom by whom is the information coming what are the incentives who's behind or supporting certain information where do the incentives go to who stands to benefit from what is being said how much money or how much is at stake etc and if you sort of think about education think about data and media literacy as a language think about the filters that will go a long way in terms of drivers for change um but it's like many aspects of education they are completely inadequate for our nonlinear complex unpredictable world and that's just one facet of it and to be honest you know i share your concern so deeply we have an entire section on what we call inforuption which is information disrupted and we treat inforuption as an existential risk we consider that the way the world is going you see it in brazil a few days ago those terrible events but even day to day the way the society is polarized we can spend a long time on on this topic but the short element is it's an existential risk that threatens not only democracy but probably the future of humanity and there are different ways of addressing it to a degree different drivers to it but but these are very complex societal problems one of many which which are just simply not addressed in our current structures policies governance incentives or or educational systems okay <laughs> but you know i completely share uh this view and 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 i actually do appreciate that you are able and you actually have a whole institute for that Roger and and you're working so hard in providing people with frameworks and tools and and information that we can actually use to start you know questioning ourselves and and opening the minds and 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 trying to at least be more prepared to face what's what's next And when you're talking and talking about uh, this school in Finland, it just made me think that who knows, maybe next you're launching a version for the youth or for for children. <laughs> yeah, we just just on that point, Maria. We we do try. I mean, it's not easy, but we try and be. You know, some of the things we do are visual. We've you know, I've been invited to podcasts with with youngsters, Sanat, who's you know, was 18 years old. Um, we have. Um, seven or eight youngsters who are part of what we call relearning advisory board which is like a shadow board and they kind of all you know 18 19 you know 12 to 19 years old globally who we've kind of shared some of the insights and got the input for the guidebook and that so i you know it's not yet packaged that easily but and the organizations like peter bishops teach the future who are focusing very much on systemic change and foresight and futures to bring to school but I would say that deep down our hope with the Disruptive Futures Institute is to democratize some of these topics not just we're not focused on just corporates and we're not just focused on individuals who have a high price point and who have studied whatever we're trying as best as we can it's not easy but to democratize these very specific topics in all kinds of ways for as many people as possible so it is our objective i'm not sure we're there yet or that it's you know um in the current form where we're good to go but one of the objectives is definitely as part of the democratization to include um the youth yes. which is our, our future yes 
That's great. That's great to know. That's amazing. Um, okay, so let's follow the, our our conversation here. Another concept that you that you talk about is is beta testing one's life. So you're basically applying the concept of of, of software and, and technology world to beta beta tests our personal and professional development. Uh, so so how how I mean I, I I can I can understand from our conversation how you know being open to being agile and open to changes and being able to change. Uh, rapidly according to whatever is 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 in your environment uh, but how how would you frame that sure so listen of course beta testing is is, is a used for software development and i'm not saying that everything that the software development or technology does is great i'm just using a metaphor and an analogy which i think is a very interesting one because what happens with beta testing is that Either you want to improve something that's working super well, but you have an idea for something new, or there's something a bit funny that you kind of want to fix. And you sort of say, okay, the only way to really test it is to release a version of the software, prototype it, see how it goes, and then correct it. And maybe people disagree. They might sort of say, yeah, that's part of the evil of the world. But ultimately, it's just, it's just trying ideas and testing. And to apply to your life, we kind of have a, a bunch of things which we're thinking about in terms of the analogy. One is in software, you're always building different suites. And so we think for your life, you should build the options of different suites. So let's say you have a specific career or job or interest. You should think about planting seeds, which might become different suites, which you can add on to core kind of operating system, your life or your expertise or your job. The other thing is that often you need to hack something with software because there's a problem. So the idea is to, to dance with these wicked problems, to see them, to, to play with them, to kind of be playful with them. Then there's the concept of you're not only doing it to resolve problems, but sometimes you have ideas to improve it or to upgrade. And so it's the idea of disrupting yourself. And software like technology has different stacked models, which together create a bigger result because, you know, platforms play with AI, play with um, automation, play with uh, whatever other tools. And the same with your capabilities. It's a systemic world. You interact with the world, your ideas interact with each other. So to think about creating stacked models, just like you would for, for software. Um, And then, and if you have these ideas you're thinking about, you can beta test them. So literally, you know, if you think you might want to enjoy studying something else or opening a restaurant, well, try working in a restaurant for a few days or try studying, doing a course. There's so many free courses. Carve out a bit of your time instead of going out on a Saturday night to a movie or whatever. Maybe just try try that. See if you enjoy the topic. Write about it if you want to be a writer. Publish something on Medium if you want to be a writer. See if people are interested. See if, if you're able. Enjoy writing. The other aspect which is interesting with the analogy, which is very important and also it's linked to anti-fragility, is the idea of Slack. So for instance, when Zoom, the pandemic hit, Zoom suddenly became the number one go-to software in the world. They increased within minutes or hours by 10 or 100 or thousands of times the capacity that they might have had. If they hadn't thought about Slack and scale 
and buffers, even though they didn't need it, it would have been a problem. So that applies to supply chains. When you go to McKinsey and they sell you the stupid report for $4 million to be hyper-efficient and all that, they are terrible people, these consultants. And McKinsey in particular for many other reasons. And for those who don't know McKinsey, I suggest you read um, when McKinsey comes to town and, and some of the work from these Wall Street journalists, um, amazing um, investigative work. But more generally, the idea of hyper-optimized, this Wall Street idea, the way businesses are run, most businesses, hyper-optimized only works in a perfect, predictable world, which is not the world we, we live in. So when there are problems with supply chains, with pandemics, with anything that goes wrong, so the idea of incorporate slack, some buffer, some additional capacity, even when you don't need it. Maybe you save some money, maybe develop a competence you don't need at that time, maybe do a course just in case, maybe learn something new if you need to, or if it leads to a new path that you enjoy. And then there's the idea of intangibles. Um, software is intangible. What intangibles are we valuing in our life? We have maybe saving money for a car or to build a house. Or what are the intangibles? Our knowledge, our culture, our thinking, our mindsets, the books we read. Um, are we upgrading our intangibles? Are we exploring in safe sandboxes where we can make mistakes? Do we have a zone of family, of business, of colleagues, of support that means we can experiment without it being a problem if we fail and, and that, because failure is, goes with hand in hand with innovation. So those are all the different facets that we can think about with the analogy of Beta Your Life. And I love it too. I agree with you. I think it's really, it gives us empowerment as opposed to feeling just scared of change. I'm laughing because uh, when you're talking about it, it's just, it's just, a movie, a movie coming to my head. The four, the last four years of my life has been a, a beta test. <laughs> so I do, I do, I do enjoy it, and and I, it's it's really mind opening. Like you, you just you just see so many paths that that you wouldn't see before when you're just stuck in your, you know, routine. Right. Hopefully, um, a good beta test, Maria. But it seems it's like been it. been amazing for sure. <laughs> So, Roger, lastly, you know, mm. it's 2023, mm. new year, maybe new uncertainties, right? Who knows? What should we expect mm. about the coming technology disruptions, its probable impacts? So, listen, I, I think, um, you know, I think if you frame the world as in disruption as a constant, basically expect constant change. Things will continue to evolve. And then I think if you're thinking more specifically about technology, and we don't, you know, predict the next this or that, but if you think the next decade or, you know, what is the direction? I think there's a, there's a phrase I use a lot, too much probably, but it's really important. I might get some things wrong, but it's basically everything that can be um, automated, cognified, virtualized, decentralized, and one or two other similar words will be so. So, and cognified means that there's some kind of communication or intelligence, you know, like Internet of Things or AI. So basically, if you assume that everything that can be digitized and automated and cognified and virtualized and decentralized will be, that is definitely going to continue. So, you know, people are making this huge fuss about generative chats. And of course, these are very, you know, interesting breakthroughs and milestones. But fundamentally, it's carrying on with the direction we talked about earlier, which is machines are learning fast. 
humans must upgrade their capabilities to understand the impact it has on their decision making and where humans need to upgrade to live in that in that cognified world. So that's kind of AI and humanity and the broad direction of technology. I think there's a quantum, you know, quantum advantage is moving to a phase where there's a lot of possibilities through quantum, you know, who knows if and when there'll be breakthroughs, but those kind of simulations of multiple realities in the present can lead to basically an era of completely new discoveries for health, for very important aspects of, of life, uh, with the safeguards and dangers of, of uncertainty. You know, um, I think the whether you call it the metaverse or immersive or Internet of Senses or Web 3.0, whatever you call it, the, the immersive nature, you know, if you look at how much time, not just kids for that matter, not just men, but how much time society, humans, billions of people are spending in virtual immersive environments, whether it's Robloxes, whatever it is, whatever you call it. I'm not a metaverse, you know, bullshit bingo person, but, but the immersion and digitization and virtualization of our lives and the world is, is real. I think despite some of the issues with, uh, with, decentralized finance and blockchain and, and crypto and that, I think decentralization is continuing to be a theme, both in terms of the world and, and technologically. Um, one of the aspects I think will be the end of laissez-faire. So I think technology will be, you know, and this is probably a good thing, you know, more policy, more regulation, but hopefully that it's done thoughtfully, because if you think you can just suddenly put random legislation and change Twitter and Google and get rid of the problem of the disinformation, you're naive. Complex systems are not so controllable. So, so it's important to have thoughtful policy and all that. The final one I'm going to mention, which is a little bit of a, of a distressing one, it's linked to, to the world, you know, not everybody is, is free, of course, is Splinternet. Um, and the idea of Splinternet is that today... If you take the, the the walls of information like in China, they can protect what Chinese citizens see in terms of a technology or information or the Internet. But ultimately, there's only one protocol, there's only one system, technology system, technology protocol and standard and IP for everything. It's just that certain countries will block, you know, Russia or China, or North Korea will block it. We're moving to a world where that is becoming splinternet, where you're actually having different technology standards and where China is producing, you know, with Huawei, ZTE, a lot of the 5G technology and infrastructure. They're selling that to, to a lot of Africa. You're moving to a world where you're no longer just kind of putting a barrier and trying to protect people from getting access to something they could potentially access or hack, but to actually creating an alternate reality where for that society or population or geography, it's, it's, you can't even with a hack or in any way whatsoever access anything else. You have literally the internet, which is split, hence the word splinternet. And the only thing that exists for you in that world is that alternate reality. There's like no escape. It's a from completely that. different reality. Wow. Yeah. And it, you already have a little bit of that through the way, you know, Russia and certain regions manage information. But that would bring it to a way which is like even more tragic for those populations because then there's no, there's no hack, there's no access, there's nothing other than that completely, some maybe to a degree fabricated or oriented um, alternate reality. So that splinternet, um, that fragmentation of the internet, I think is is kind of we're already sort of starting to see signs of that. So th those are some of the things. But you know, once again, some of these things are neutral. You know, 
the incredible things that AI can do with drug discovery and health and maybe the discoveries with quantum and that. So I'm not trying to be, you know, doomsday or anything. I think it's it's like many things are neutral. You know, car, you can get to see your child being born. You've had a child recently. You can do wonderful things with cars. You also have car accidents, you know. So it's the neutrality and the duality of many of these things. Um, Roger, it was such a pleasure having you with us once again. Uh, for everybody that is interested in knowing more, uh, uh, could you just let everybody know how to have access to the book, uh, to, to all the incredible tools that you're giving people and the frameworks? And, you know, there's so much richness in there. People that I do, do recommend you just go to the site. I know that you can download the ebook. You can have a hard copy. Could you please, uh, Roger, let us know? Sure. No, thanks so much, Maria. And, and the pleasure was mine. It's really this amazing um guests you have, talks, discussions, forum and, and growth. So glad to see Future Hacker scale. So, so that's wonderful. In terms of our work, it's very simple. Um, we have a website called the Disruptive Futures Institute, which is the umbrella for the Institute. We have a website for the publication, the definitive guide to thriving on disruption. The website is thriving on disruption. So www.thrivingondisruption.com. We try and be as active as we can on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram more and more. A lot of the work is visual um, and basically some of the things can be downloaded free. We're trying to democratize it on Medium and over time we'll be ramping up in 2023 and onwards how much is available for free on different social media platforms. So if you follow Disruptive Futures Institute, Thriving on Disruption, um, that's great. If you want to do courses, if you want talks, if you want to actually buy the books that's great as well but hopefully there's a lot that's that's free and that's helpful we're adding all the links down here in the description everybody so if you have a hard time just get to the description the link is right there also we're adding the link to the first interview that we did with roger and lydia back in 2020 roger such a pleasure thank you so much wish you all the best likewise maria it's it's great and uh, all the best for you for the team and for future hacker can't wait to see uh, the new heights you you climb to Future Hacker. Life. Path. Future.